All right. Um, well, let's, uh, let's think real quick about this. This is a little fish. Uh, according to the Government Fish and Wildlife Service, the Atlantic salmon is one of the largest salmon species. I love eating this fish. They're fast swimmers. They can jump 12, 12 feet high. Imagine that. Um, that, that's part, that salmon, the, the root means leaper. <laughs> uh, the Atlantic salmon, enormous fish. Uh, and, and this is the thing. They will swim in their life 6,000 miles. Thousands of miles. Up to 6,000 miles going and coming back to where they were spawned. Sometimes swimming 200 miles up a river to get back. And something in them, they think it's some sense of smell, allows them to know from years before where they were birthed or where they were spawned um, and get back to it. Isn't that crazy? Right? It's really hard to say that just happened by some mutation and accident and now all the other fish are dead except for these super special fish that, that accidentally, like that's ridiculous to think that that's science, but it's still called science in some places. Um, but this is an amazing creation of God that demonstrates his beauty in giving us not just a really tasty fish, um, but also an amazing example of the Christian life. Uh, Jesus was no stranger to swimming upstream. Jesus was no stranger to opposition. And as Christians, we, we are not to be fighters in the sense of looking for a fight. We are to be peacemakers. But as we pursue the king and his kingdom, we recognize the fact that as you walk uphill, as you follow Jesus, you become a, a fish swimming upstream. And it is supernatural what you need to get back to your new birth, uh, where the Lord is sometimes 200 miles you're going every day. And you're like, how in the world am I going to live this life out in this community that God has placed me? And it's following Christ. Jesus carried out his Father's plan through demons and the greatest, though demons and the greatest of the land opposed him at every place and time. Now we who follow Christ will meet the same as we obey the Lord's command. Father, Son, and Spirit make us stand. Today we're going to survey that opposition as a whole. Okay, so that's where we're headed with this. Um, I'm not going to review a whole lot, but just to show that we're kind of right in the middle here of our series and right in the middle of, of a survey of these different themes in Jesus' life. And if you sat down and read the Gospels today, you would find out that, that a big chunk of Jesus' ministry was, was one under the scrutiny of opposition. Under the scrutiny of opposition. So if we were to look here at his public ministry from baptism to ascension, right? And, and different people have different dates. I kind of like this dating here. I'm, I'm going through, this is what we're doing is a harmony of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're trying to put all of the references there. In, in one chart. Um, and, and so generally speaking, there's great growth in his Galilean ministry. And then as we'll see as we continue in the weeks, all of this ministry is, is filled with three trips each year to Jerusalem. And so all of those fit in there. Um, but in this growth and decline, all along the way, there is opposition. So if we were to try to survey here, 
what part of this, or if I tried to pick, uh, okay, here's where the opposition is, it'd be the whole thing. It'd be the whole thing. Really, your Gospels are, are packed with opposition from, from Jesus' birth, we'll see, all the way to his death. And so it's a harder theme for us to grasp, and what I'm going to do is just survey a lot of it, and then we're going to dip into two or three specific cases and jump into the text to let that speak to us. So we're going to observe the text uh, and the theme, and then we're going to draw from that what Jesus, how Jesus faces opposition. And so our second big idea will be actually um, responding to opposition in our lives, and then we'll close with one, one main point here uh, for ourselves and making sure we actually have opposition. Okay, so let's look here, a survey of the content, who opposed Jesus, who opposed Jesus, and uh, you have an outline there in front of you, it, I just, just try not to get too lost, okay, um, and, uh, and try to take notes, try to, try to write down different references, and, and there's, a, there's just so much here that it's a lot of stuff that you can study as you go home, uh, you can study later, so some of the things we'll have to survey pretty quickly. But let's look at the content, first of all. You see these main areas of opposition, main fronts on which Jesus was opposed. And I'm going to divide it into four. Religious opposition, political opposition, spiritual opposition, and family opposition. Okay, so let's just jump into this religious opposition. First of all, we'll find the group of the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that they're the primary opposition that Jesus has faced. The most heated of debates and struggles were through these groups. Really, the scribes are a subset of the Pharisees that gave themselves entirely to the Scriptures. Uh, this group we find uh, a lot about in secular history. And really, honestly, this is the group that, that survived to this day. And we find them on the streets of Brooklyn on the streets of, of Queens. Uh, this is our Orthodox Jewish people. Uh, these are the separate ones. That's the idea. The separate ones. They're separating themselves. The Sadducees were Hellenized. You remember that, that word from, from history class? Meaning they took along, took along with them a lot of the Greek influences and the Roman influences of their day. And because of that, they became wealthy and, and rose to prominence. Pharisees, not so much. But, but there's thousands of them, and, and they are really trying to nail down the Scripture, not just the Torah, all of the Old Testament, and beyond that, the oral tradition that, that interprets the Scriptures, and then the rabbis that interpret the interpretations of the Scriptures. And so they love hashing out all these fine details, things like heated, lengthy debates, about whether you can eat an egg that was laid by a hen on the Sabbath day. Right? Can you? That was labor on the Sabbath. Can you partake of that? And, and so this is what they'd fight about. Satan, uh, okay, keep going. Um, and so they, they were a little out of touch with people self-righteous bunch that looked down on all others for, for not nitpicking all of their punctilious silliousness. And while they're focused on that egg, they're, they're running out of charity and, and kindness. And so it's a punctilious callousness. 
Jesus did not pull punches with them. Right? They wanted to make this hedge about the law, about the hedge, about the law, this fence around the fence, around the fence. And Jesus just walked all over that fence. <laughs> he, he did not disobey the law, but he, he had a perfectly fun time disobeying their tradition. So you have these arguments about Sabbath, about breaking the tradition of the washing of hands, about asking questions about the, the, the law, them asking him questions to try to trip him up. They're challenging his authority. They're accusing him of being empowered by Satan. And as we read several times, they try to take him by force and kill him. That's the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Not as often. The Pharisees are mentioned 79 times in the Gospels. The Sadducees are mentioned nine times. So a lot less. But, but the Sadducees were the, the ruling group of that day. So they're mostly focused in Jerusalem. They're the, the party of the priesthood. They're actually in partnership with Rome to a certain extent. So they're in with Pilate. They have all the power. They have the wealth. So the Pharisees need them. But they're the ruling body of what's called the Sanhedrin, their senate. They have the, the majority, the overwhelming majority of the senate. They held to just the first five books of the Old Testament, as you probably know. So they're denying the, the resurrection. They're getting whatever they can now. And they're making, making a good life for themselves, quote unquote. All right. So what I want to do just for a second is, is find one scene where these two groups really lock arms with Jesus. Okay, so let's just take a minute with this. What we're going to do, just so you know, in time frame, it's right here. This is what's helpful to know as you look at a harmony of the Gospels, meaning we're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together. This event actually happens twice. It's so significant. Jesus does this all the way toward the beginning of his ministry. But if you'll see here real quick, here you can hardly see that. Jesus has already turned to the water and the wine. He's gone through the baptism and temptation. Uh, he, he starts to know Peter, James, and John in, in the sense of follow me. And, and so there's a loose following him. So maybe some of them came with him to Jerusalem. At this point, this is happening in Jerusalem, Judea area. This is happening in Galilee. And then perhaps some of them come back with Jesus, uh, but probably not all of them. So maybe just John. And so we find John recording this, but the other gospel writers don't record this. Um, the, the details that John gives. And so we find this Passover time around April 27 AD. In John chapter 2, we have, a, have Jesus cleansing the temple. All right, so let's uh, just take a look at this. The scene of the crime is John chapter 2, verse 13. If you have your Bible, you can look there. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that's north, but it would be going up as far as elevation, and also the idea of, of we go up to this spiritual mountain. And so the scene is Passover, packed with people, right? Uh, this is, again, as we've said, this is Times Square, uh, Christmas time. Uh, just packed with celebration and everybody's family, and they're used to coming up. The crime, what is the crime? The prayer room was made into a prophet room. This court of the Gentiles surrounding the temple, right? So this is actually just remodeled uh, by Herod the Great. 
uh, within their lifetime, many of their lifetime. This is all brand new. It's amazing. And, and they're like, wow, look at this. You know, we can, this is big enough to where we can bring all the, the lambs and the doves and the money changing area in here. And, and people can actually be in the temple complex because this is just for the Gentiles. We don't have a whole lot of Gentiles here. Uh, so why, what do they need a place? And so now it smells and it's loud and, and, and there's actually extortion going on. or There's, there's br- trickery where, where people would need to change their money into what the temple would accept. And so they'd bring money, types of money from all over the Roman Empire and then they'd come and they'd need to exchange it to get the right currency. But there would be an upcharge. And so it was a racket is what it was. Um, so we have Times Square and now we have... Uh, downtown, um, Wall Street. Okay, the crime, prayer room made into profit room. The solution, here's Jesus' solution. And this is fascinating because even to this day, what do Jewish people, Jewish households do during Passover? Get rid of all the lemon. And, and it's almost symbolic. You sweep out your house. You sweep all the dirt out. And Jesus is coming into his father's house and here's manure. And, and here's, here's trickery, and here is loud animals inside his father's house. And so Jesus takes care of it. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep, the oxen, he poured out the coins of the money. This was not something that was... I believe he was under control, absolutely. But the temple complex became out of control. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. You know what happens when you overturn a huge wooden table, the sound that makes? Boom! I mean, you can just see him going from one table to the next. Boom! Boom! And like he's under control, but everybody's like, oh, he's coming to my table. Yeah, he's coming to your table. And then all of your money, all of your profits from all of Passover is now scattered everywhere. And the poor are finally taken care of. To those who are selling doves, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Wow, that's authority. And this is, this is Jesus' annunciation to Jerusalem. I am in charge here because I'm the son of God. This is my father's house. You're not going to do what you want here. This needs to be a place of prayer, not a place of making money. And so he cleanses it. He sweeps out the leaven with a whip. So it's kind of like you, you, it looks like a broom. And I don't think he's beating people and bloodying people, but I don't think anybody's resisting this strong 33 year old carpenter. Maybe 31, 32 debate there, but. Because he is, he is doing this in the power of the Spirit, of course. Uh, the Lord is making this happen, and by the end of the day, it is quiet. You could hear a pin drop, and people are praying. Maybe Gentiles are actually able to come in and pray. So, when we say that Jesus had opposition, we read this, and we're like, okay, I understand where that came from. Um, the disciples remembered this, and they remembered this, this, this quote from Psalm I think 69, 68, zeal for your house will consume me. 
It's a fascinating verse. Zeal. This is verse 17 of John uh, 2 there. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was devoured, eaten up with zeal. Like there was such a zeal for his father's place that it ate him up to where he had to take action. Upset the apple cart. Huge loss of money. Huge embarrassment. A huge power grab as Jesus demonstrates that he is the one in power. And it went up to the top. The high priest knew about this. Every Sadducee, every Pharisee, and it probably, I'm sure, also went up to the line uh, to Herod and Pilate. And then you have peace in the courtyard for a few days. And then Jesus has to do it all again in a few years, a couple years. It gets to Pilate and Herod, and so we find political opposition Um, I'm not going to get into Herod and Pilate because we're going to get into them more when we look at the death of Christ. If I could just say, summarize it in one word, confusing. You look at that chart of Herod and how all this happened to where Pilate comes in, and and it's just very confusing. But you know, from Jesus' birth, there's opposition. Herod tries to kill everyone. So it's kind of like this. You, you, you You can't get to Jamaica Hospital to have your baby, so you have a baby in the under the, the seven train there, and, and then you hear that the governor is trying to kill your child. And, and because this governor of New York can't find you, he's just going to kill every baby in Queens. This is the kind of thing Mary and Joseph are going through. This is serious opposition from his birth. And of course we know Pilate is the one who, who is the official who overtakes, um, who oversees Jesus' crucifixion. Um, we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, there's spiritual opposition. And this is the one that's fascinating, and I think maybe we, we dwell on this a lot, but um, after Jesus' temptation, all right, so Jesus is baptized, and we won't go back there, but you, you, we looked at that. Uh, after he was, was, was baptized, there was 40 days of, of temptation in the wilderness. All right, this is 3% of Jesus' entire ministry is spent under temptation in the desert there with Satan. And Satan is trying to tempt him. If I could say, Jesus was never out of control there. He was always in control. It's not like there's this battle, 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 and will will Jesus win or Satan win? Satan was always defeated any time he came up against Jesus. And if you look at the other, there's 47 references to demons mentioned in the Gospels. If you look at all of those occurrences, you will find the same exact thing. So sometimes we think of demon demon possession. We think, well, it's like Jesus fighting with Satan. Satan fights back. Jesus fights back in this. Will he win? In the Gospels, there's none of that. It would be really cool for you to just look up demon in your Bible. Look up the Gospels, and every time the reference is, he cast him out. He cast him out. He cast him out. And here's one reference. As he cast him out, they're just saying, no, you can't talk. This is the kind of authority the Son of Man has over demons. It's not like, well, maybe... Now, we read the disciples having trouble, right? But Jesus has no trouble. Um, And so the gospel presents it this way. I think we take this seriously, of course. We don't think lightly of Satan and and the demonic world. But we should never think that it's ever a fight as if Jesus is not in control. Jesus has complete control. And if you're in Christ... You have nothing to fear. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee. He will run, just like they are. Can I speak? No, you can't. 
because of the name of Jesus. Okay, and we need to move on here. So this is the spiritual opposition. And then this one for me was the most significant, and I really didn't think about this carefully till this week, maybe the last couple weeks. This family opposition. So take your Bible and turn to Luke 4. Let's just take a moment with this. We're going to go to Nazareth um, and, and just consider, okay, so this one here, we kind of right in the middle of Jesus's uh, ministry here. This is where this one is. And uh, Luke puts it right at the beginning to show this is really synonymous with Jesus's public ministry and what will happen to him uh, throughout the time. So it happens right toward the beginning of Luke 6. Um, we find Jesus going to Nazareth to his hometown in verse 16. Nazareth, again, is, is not a major town. Uh, it's considered a city, but two to 300 people. Way out, out of the way spot. Um, in this small city, there's a vibrant Jewish community. Um, from the, the hilltop around it, it's kind of like in a spoon. Uh, now, I've never been, but it's kind of like in a spoon where you go down and, and you can't see anything. But if you go up on the hillside around Nazareth, you can see all around. You can see all of Israel. 30 miles this way, 15 miles that way. Um, and so here Jesus comes back to his hometown. If, if we could just think about this for just a minute. The, these, these, again, are people that know Jesus so well. Uncles, aunts, cousins, they, they, would, they would go every year, three times the males would travel together, the two or three days together to Jerusalem. So you can imagine them going up, getting to know each other really well, playing games together, laughing with each other, crying with each other, people getting married because they meet each other on these trips. People dying, sadness, crying. But what was central to that Jewish community was their synagogue. And they would meet there every Saturday and they would bring out a scroll and someone, a man from the community, would read a text and talk about it. They would recite the Shema, they would sing psalms. But they all knew little Joshua. They saw him grow up, bleed, cry, get dirty, play in the streets. But as he grew, they began to respect him more and more as he grew in favor with God and men. He's no longer little now. Again, he's past 30. He spent 20 years in manual labor. He is strong. He is loved. He's respected. He's central to this community in one sense, at least to the synagogue. And so as Jesus comes back, the text tells us, Luke 4.16, he came back to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And so they just bring one of the scrolls. Let's bring Isaiah's scroll to you. They bring Isaiah's scroll. And what he would do is he would go like this and he would find a specific spot. And he quotes this passage in Isaiah. All right, this is uh, respected Jesus reading Isaiah in front of this community. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. All right, so he's coming back after being baptized the Spirit is upon him because he has anointed. What does that word mean in Hebrew? Somebody yell it out. It has reference to, to Christ, right? Messiah. Messiah. 
this, this anointed one, this Messiah. He has anointed me. Well, what is the anointed one to do? To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are opposed. They're so excited about this. Yes, yes, Jesus. It's time for the Messiah to come. Bring the Messiah. And there may be they're thinking, maybe this is, this is the Elijah who is to come. Maybe this, our own Jesus, is the Messiah to come. Probably the prophet to come. I don't think they're believing he's Messiah yet. And then he says this, this fulfillment. He closed the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down. Everyone's just fixed on him. What are you going to say about this? This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah has come. He's been preaching to the poor. He's been healing the blind. And look at verse 22. All are speaking well of him. And the gracious words that he's saying. Now I want you to just picture like, like the most enjoyable friend, family friend that you had with your family growing up. When you were 15. Did you have a family like that? For me, I think it was the Hammonds. We would get together like every Sunday night. and um, We just, just hung out. Um, and the kids got in trouble. But, but like, it was just a pleasant time in my childhood. Other families, maybe you don't think very pleasantly. But think of that. A family that you, or maybe an individual that you enjoyed being with. This is Jesus' synagogue. And when it's done reading, yeah, the Messiah is coming, Jesus. They all pat him on the back. They love his message. The Messiah is coming. Yes, may it be. And then look what he continues to do. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. The one who has come to heal. Whatever we heard done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And then he starts going on this, this side light that, that everybody is not okay with. I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And he went to a Gentile. Verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. And he went to a Gentile. He's just showing you know what? The Messiah is not just going to come to Jewish people. He's going to come to Gentile people and help. What was their answer to that? This is amazing. This kind of opposition. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. As they heard the things that Jesus was teaching, they got up and drove him out of the city. Can you picture this? They drove him out of the city, led him up to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is the opposition. These are people that he knew. He had worked on their cars, right on their yoke of oxen. He had built some of their houses, no doubt, the wood parts of it. They take this young man, and they are ready to throw him off the cliff to his death for preaching such a thing that God would love the world. This is a little Nazareth overlooking a cliff. A cliff overlooking Nazareth. That is, like, that's got to mess with you. I mean, if you, you just imagine that, that family, and maybe you didn't have a family like that, but if I could just imagine now Butch and Linda so mad at me that they're ready to strangle me. 
That's hard for me to take even now thinking about it. Like Sometimes we forget that Jesus is God, yes, but he is fully man. All the emotions of humanity, all the, all the thoughts that you and I would be tempted to think, they're going through his mind. Have you ever felt opposition like that? Probably not. Your, your own friends, your own family, the people that raised you are now ready to kill you. This is what Jesus went through. And so I think out of all those four, right, the demonic one was probably the least oppressive to him. I think this is, in his human sense, this is the most difficult one. Goes back to Nazareth and they're ready to kill him. Jerusalem, you know, he's, of course, he knows he's going to die there. Okay, so what do we learn? I just, we could, we could go through all of that really well, but, but let's just take some lessons of how Jesus dealt with this opposition. What did Jesus do in order to overcome opposition? And we will learn the same lessons. Um, the, in one sense, how did this work, right? How could he stand? Because like, at, at a certain point, the, the popularity, 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 so the opposition grows, but the popularity grows to so much to the extent that the, it overwhelms the opposition. But at some point, the popularity falls off and the opposition continues to grow. Political opposition, family opposition, religious leaders' opposition. How did Jesus ever survive this? We learned some lessons, and perhaps you're facing opposition uh, one there in just a second with the question. But um, So how do we face opposition? What lessons do we learn from Jesus? Well, first of all, Christ faced opposition with Scripture. Christ faced opposition with Scripture. We could really do this through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I just picked Matthew. And, and if we had the time, we don't have the time, but I would encourage you to read each of these passages if you're dealing with opposition. It's fascinating how often Jesus responded to opposition by quoting Scripture. That's why we're memorizing Scripture as a church. That's why we're encouraging you to be in Scripture. To be honest, like we have discipleship, we have grace groups, but, but like it's all so small compared to what you need to be doing in your own heart before the Lord with the Word. Because uh, we all need to be built up on the Word by, in our own heart. And then the community helps with that. Um, but this is what Jesus would do. Of course, Matthew 4, you're familiar with. This would be the temptation. As Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him, he keeps responding with, It is written. Matthew 4, 3 through 11. Matthew 9, 11 through 13, he responds to the Pharisees who say, Why is your teacher eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? He says, God thinks this way. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And he just quotes scripture. That happens repeatedly as he answers the opposition given to him by the Pharisees. Now, it's going to be a little difficult if you're, work, if you're late to work every week, every day this week, and you say, I have opposition from my boss to go to him and quote a scripture on that. Because the, the boss is probably right on that one, right? But, but it's interesting how even opposition that wasn't necessarily from the Pharisees, Jesus had the right perspective by handling it through scripture. So it wasn't that he just used it to make Satan leave. It wasn't just that he made the religious leaders quiet. But there were certain times, actually one of the times was Matthew 12. And if you have your Bible, you could turn there. I'll just read this one. Matthew 12, verses 14, 15, and 16. 
the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how they might destroy him. So this is another case where this is, where this is happening. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. So there's this great Galilean ministry where Jesus is very publicly healing the sick and teaching, and we're going to get to all that. Um, but, but there's a time where that opposition becomes so strong that Jesus starts teaching in more remote areas to just his closer followers. And, and so like that's the kind of opposition that Jesus was facing. You'll say, well, how did he know to start that change of mentality where he's not in their face as much? He quoted scripture. He got that from scripture. This was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet saying, Behold my servant who I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So he's not just going to be in Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm in the Gentiles. And listen to this. He will not quarrel. So he's like, okay, this is not my time to be in their face. I recognize from reading my Bible that this is, this is the spirit I'm to have at this time. So Jesus actually learned from his Bible what his marching orders were. And so we find ourselves, as you open the word each day, you find your marching orders as you follow Jesus, who is the word. And you find that, I'm just going to just look at that one, but this is the case with all of these. Jesus responded to opposition with scripture. But there were times when when he was ready to face opposition uh, face on. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but, but you know what I mean. He, he, is, not, he is not always going to hide. And, and we need to recognize this too with Jesus, with our own lives. Sometimes it's easy to, ah, I'm just, you know, just going to back off, I'm just going to back off, I'm just going to back off. But eventually you have to, you have to confront the bully. You, you, you have to, or the elephant in the room, you, you have to address it. And Jesus was so good at that, right? We can't just keep sweeping things under the rug as Christians. It's God's will for us also to say, this is a problem, let's talk about it. Okay? You, and, and so, like, you're, you're opposing me. Okay, so let's talk about that. Why, why are you opposing what I'm saying here? Right? Why are you opposing the scripture? Okay, so I love this part of Jesus. Right, so this is where we get some New Yorker. Um, Luke 13, 31 to 33. Um, he does this actually as you end this time period of him preaching in the outer regions. He starts coming back to Jerusalem and he's ready to die. So he's ready to come with both barrels. Um, he's like, this is my time now to confront. Listen to this one, Luke 13. Do I have this? Luke thirteen thirty one. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached Jesus saying, go away, leave here. Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, what? Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I reach my goal. I'm ready to die. Go ahead, tell that fox. I'm I'm ready for it. Come and get me. Nevertheless, I must journey on today, be at Jerusalem. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. He points back to scripture. Uh, the, the really fascinating one, and we just, we're out of time here, but if you look at Matthew 21 to 23, you find Jesus doing this in an amazing way. So there he confronts the political opposition, but he really faces the religious opposition, and he faces the family opposition. Each one of those he deals with separately. Um, but the, the, the great one is Matthew 21 to 23. 
Matthew 21, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees all gang up on him in Jerusalem at the last week of his life. So then we're gearing all the way to the end here. And, and in the temple complex, or somewhere very public, they start asking him questions, trying to stump him, trying to stump him, trying to stump him. All through chapter 21, answers their questions. Answers their questions. Answers their questions. And then you look at the end of Matthew chapter 21. I love the last verse. Because he asks them a question. And they can't answer him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. I'm sorry, that's the end of chapter 22. Uh, Verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him any other questions. <laughs> he just shut him up. All right, you have questions. I'm going to answer your questions. Can you answer my questions? So he, he, he answered questions by asking questions. And it just shut down the opposition. Now they're quiet. Does he stop there? No. Turn over to Matthew 23. And it's just, he just lets them have it. Um... Verse 17, you fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Verse 24 of chapter 23, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Verse 26, you blind Pharisees. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? You see the crowd starting to gather? How is Jesus going to do in this battle? He's going to win it. He shuts them down. And then he starts confronting their soul and saying, you're going to hell. This is the the holiest of the holy of that day. You're all going to hell. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Nine times in that chapter, he cries out, whoa. I'm sorry, eight times. And so he faced opposition Straight on as well when it was time. And then lastly, Christ faced opposition with prayer. So in order to face opposition in our lives, we do the same thing. We face it with scripture. We face it at times right on. We don't skirt around it. You have that issue. You're just like, okay, let's, let's just not ignore this. This is happening. So let's talk through this. Why, right? why, are, you, why are you mad at me? Or right, why are we going through this? Let's just let's get in the, open, in the open so we can deal with it. And then... This is the most important. He faced it with prayer. With prayer. Jesus, the Son of God, filled with praying. And and Luke is the one that uh, really deals with that. Um, as, As he faced times of greatest temptation and difficulty, he he was filled with praying. At least nine times Luke mentions this. Uh, But he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, on the cross he prays. He prays right before his baptism. I'm sorry, right before his temptation during his baptism. Uh, And just before the first prediction of his death, he prays. Um, Jesus is always praying, and that gives him strength. And that gives us strength as well. Um, The Lord gives us strength as we pray and ask him for grace to stand in prayer. And so this is an overall application here before we get to that final point, and we'll be done. Um, I just want to ask you a question. Are you facing opposition? We are all facing some kind of opposition. But what I would encourage you to think through is, are you facing the opposition that comes from being like Christ?
That is the opposition that we should be facing. Right, sometimes I face opposition because I didn't study, and now I'm coming to the test, and I got an F. Right, that's not what we're talking about. Or maybe you slash someone's tire. You should be facing opposition. Um, but what, what we really want to ask, those who follow Jesus have the opposition that Jesus faced. And so I know many of you are facing family opposition because of your faith. Right? We are unusual in our freedom in, in that we, we have very little opposition from political realm. Political realm. Uh, and, and if you disagree with me, you, you haven't read history or the Bible, right? This is the norm. The norm is, am I going to survive with my life and possessions? Am I going to be locked? I have heard of one young man from uh, New York City who, who actually was locked in an insane asylum because he converted to Jesus. He believed in Jesus. But that's rare. That's rare. Um, around the world, that's normal. Here, it's rare. And, and so, so I just, as I read this, I'm like, Lord Jesus, am I walking the way of the cross? Am I being faithful? Is our church being faithful? Um, I, I do believe that some of this is just common grace as he gives us an area that is, is full of freedom, and I'm thankful for that. But I just pray that, that we will, as a church, be vocal. We will, as a church, be winsome. And, and, and call people to repentance. Um, that I will personally, that this will be a, a, I will be a vocal follower of Jesus wherever I go. Um, and then as we do, we will face opposition. And uh, that was uh, Amy Carmichael. I mentioned that in the poem, uh, that poem in um, the email this week. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent. Lead me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that compass me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? We don't want scars. <laughs> we don't want spears. But it's an important question to consider before the Lord. Lord, am I following you if I don't have the kind of opposition that you had? Give me grace to stand for you. And as we do... We may have friends and family that don't understand. We may have false religions. We will have false religions that don't understand. Angry mobs and politicians that don't understand. And of course, Satan, and I do believe our, our church faces this, um, and you'd face this, and, and demonic oppression that, that does not, that will resist. But Christ is still over all of this, and I want to end on that positive note here. He is still the one reigning supreme. Right? Remember the final page. Um, the, the Lord went up to Jerusalem. The Lord said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The, the enemy did not win. Right? Jesus gave himself up into the Father's hands. Into my hands I commend my spirit. He gave up his spirit. 
The opposition did not take him. The greatest opposition in that case was the Father's wrath poured out in penalty, the sins that you and I have committed. Because all of those things were tertiary to this most important point. He needed to be at odds, at enmity with the Father in our place. And the Father's wrath was poured out on the Son so that you and I could have the, this is my beloved Son, Tim. I would never earn that. I'm nowhere near what a Pharisee would be. I would be in hell if a Pharisee would be in hell. But a perfect Son he came at odds with a, with a perfect Holy Father so that I could be brought in and embraced and loved by a holy God. And that's the amazing, amazing gift of the gospel that Jesus came in order for himself to be opposed by God. God estranged from God. How can this be? Because he is son of God and son of man. This amazing nature of Christ and the father through him. Through that has made him then highest of all. Because Jesus took on the wrath that I deserved. He has made him who emptied himself and became obedient unto the death of the cross. King of kings. Lord of lords. All judgment is passed over to him. The crowds that jeered will bow And shame, all of the Nazarene, all of the citizens will bow in shame that did not bow yet. Those neighbors who took him to the edge will bow in shame. Every political leader, Pilate, Herod, leaders of all the world today will bow in shame if they do not bow to Jesus. And so Jesus says, From Isaiah 45, that Philippians 2, that we saw earlier in the service, Isaiah 45 quotes that. I'm sorry, Philippians 2 quotes this. Turn to me then and be saved, all ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Philippians 2 quotes this about Jesus. I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. The Lord is my righteousness. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him shall be what? Put to shame. All the opposition will be shamed. It's spoken of in Isaiah, not just Philippians. And so if you're opposing his will today, maybe you're watching online and, and maybe even you here in the room, you said, today I just was tired of obeying Jesus. Let's all bow again. Take up our cross and follow him, okay? In closing prayer, heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're, if you're posing as well today, you're on the wrong side of history. On the wrong side of his story. And it will not go well for you eternally. So based on the authority of God's word, I appeal to you today to leave your own way, lay down your rebel arms, stop resisting him, and follow him. Life works that way. Because a yoke with Christ, even though opposed, is lighter still than a yoke without him. A life of serving self or serving Satan is no life at all. It's a lie. Jesus carried out his father's plan Though demons and the greatest of the land 
opposed him at every place and time. Now we who follow Christ will meet the same as we obey the Lord's command. Father, Son, and Spirit, make us stand. Let's pray. We stand in the back and be happy to pray with you. If you'd like to, to pray with someone, you're facing opposition, I'd love to pray with you. But let's all pray for grace to stand for Christ as we follow Jesus.